Have you ever wondered why the third candle on the advent wreath is pink? You probably know why the candles are purple and pink. I actually didn't. I wondered why. I mean, we have green and red everywhere else. So why on the advent wreath, purple and pink? So I had to find that out. But the pink candle has to do with joy. That's the short answer. But the long answer has to do something with Lent and something with the Gnostic movement that really started picking up speed around the second century. So this was a fun adventure for me to find out all the things you're going to hear. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we think about the night of your birth and how wonderful that was for the whole creation, that God the Son became a human being. Please help us to reach deep into all of the traditions, the centuries of faithful people who have been looking forward to celebrating that night and who celebrate you as we do today. We pray these things in your name, amen. In the earliest centuries of the church, the most important date on the calendar was Easter, the day the Lord rose from the dead. 40 days, in honor of Jesus' 40 days in the desert, were set aside to fast and pray just the way Jesus had, and to do something to show repentance of sin in preparation for that glorious day when Christ's victory over sin and death is commemorated, and that became what we know today as Lent. Now somewhere around the second century, some Christians began to celebrate Jesus' birth as well because Jesus was really a person who had really been born and he lived and he died and he was bodily resurrected. But no one really knew exactly when Jesus had been born. Now in the meantime, December 25 was already a huge holy day that had been celebrated for thousands of years when people feasted and they exchanged gifts and did other things in honor of the winter solstice, celebrating the night that the great mother goddess was supposed to give birth to the baby sun god. Now variations of this myth are found all throughout the known world of that day, including Egypt and India, the Middle East, all the lands surrounding the Mediterranean Sea, the Celtic lands up in Europe, as far north as Scandinavia, and as far south as Africa. And early Christians began to give this festival a new meaning, to celebrate the birth of the Son of God, the unconquered Son, and the Son of Righteousness, the true fulfillment of all these other stories. And by the early 5th century, Advent services started showing up as a counterpart to Lent and lasted about 40 days, just the way Lent had. And Advent, as with Lent, was the season where Christians were supposed to wait in the darkness of sin with hopeful expectation for promised redemption, just as the whole world had been waiting expectantly for the birth of Messiah. You remember the Magi from the East, they'd been studying the stars waiting for this Messiah. And actually, all the lands surrounding Palestine at that time, they were all waiting for some king or messiah to be born. Now, at first, people were supposed to fast for three times a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, as well as do some act to show repentance of sin, and they were, of course, to pray. And it was also a time of instruction and self-reflection in preparation to be baptized in the new year. Eventually, by the 9th century, the 40 days of Advent began to be reduced, until by the medieval period, Advent had become the four-week time of preparation that you and I know of today. Now, interestingly, for centuries, 
the coming that was celebrated was less about the birth of Jesus and more about Jesus' second coming. It really wasn't until the Middle Ages that the church began using the Advent season to specifically prepare to celebrate Jesus' birth on Christmas Day. And even then, this newer sense of the baby Jesus Advent, or coming, that we celebrate today did not actually replace the older sense of the second coming. For the first two weeks of Advent, the church would reflect on the second coming, and people would confess their sins, and they would think about their unworthiness, and they would spend time hoping for the quick coming back of the Lord. And then the last two weeks of Advent would transition to focus more on the first coming, Christ in the manger. And for the church, purple, and more recently blue, was used for the royalty of Christ, and rose, or pink, was used for joy. The whole red and green and gold and white and all those colors really are much older than Christian colors. And that's why the candles in the Advent wreath are traditionally purple and pink. Purple is also used to signify a time of prayer and repentance and sacrifice, as well as royalty for Jesus. And each of the Advent wreath's candles is supposed to represent a thousand years. So added together, the four candles symbolize 4,000 years that humanity waited for the world's Savior. So remember that in Genesis 3 was the Evangelon, and that was God telling Eve there would come this hero who would crush the serpent. So that's when the waiting began. And then 4,000 years later, by the traditional reckoning of the passage of time in Scripture, we came to Christ. So the first Sunday of Advent symbolizes hope with the prophet's candle, reminding us that Jesus is coming. And I keep thinking about how Steve taught us that our hope is not wishful thinking. It is a sure and steady confidence that God's promises are always kept. And then the second Sunday of Advent, that can symbolize peace with the angel's candle, reminding us of the message of the angels, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And I keep remembering Dr. Bill reminding us that our internal experience of peace does not come from outward circumstances. It comes from a steadfast mind that's anchored in trust in God. And then the fourth Sunday, which will happen next week, that can symbolize faith with the Bethlehem candle, reminding us of Mary and Joseph's journey to Bethlehem. But this fourth candle also can represent love, the overflowing love of God for the earth and for all creation, and most poignantly for us. And that brings us to the third Sunday of Advent, which always symbolizes joy with the shepherd's candle, reminding us of the joy the world experienced at the coming birth of Jesus. Now, you may have heard it called Gaudete Sunday, so called because of the liturgy that grew up around the Advent services. The introit, which was always sung in Latin for this third Sunday, begins Gaudete in Domino Semper, Iterum Dico Gaudete, meaning rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. So the third Sunday was supposed to be a respite from all the fasting and penitence and repentance and somberness because of this transition to rejoicing in anticipation of Jesus' first coming. Some people call it Stir Up Sunday, and that's based on the collect of the day, 
Stir up thy power, O Lord, and with great might come among us, and because we are sorely hindered by our sins, let thy bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with thee and the Holy Ghost be honor and glory world without end. Amen. Isn't that a great prayer? Think of the times your heart has been stirred up by joy. That rush of feeling when something so very good happens, or when you see someone you've been missing, or when you feel especially thankful and happy. It's a good place to start. Since words like joy, they're hard to explain to someone who's never recognized experiencing it. Still, joy goes deeper and shows up in unexpected places in the scriptures. For example, Think about where Jesus drew his courage and will from as he faced the cross. Surprisingly, in those moments, it was not love or faithfulness or even that settled peace that surpasses understanding. Instead, it was for the sake of the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross, disregarding its shame. In the same way, as you and I share in Jesus' life, we discover our source of strength and wherewithal, the buoying of our faith, the sustaining of our spirit, comes through the joy set before us, just as these apostles experienced and passed on to us. Listen to this one from the Apostle Peter. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's suffering, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. And this comes from Jesus' brother James, who became the leader of the Jerusalem church. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And then what about this from the Apostle Paul? May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience, while joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. And finally, this comes from Paul's partner, Luke. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their region. So they shook the dust off their feet and protest against them, and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. In fact, these are only four examples of how joy sustained believers in the first century church. Joy that came with the indwelling and infilling Holy Spirit. In fact, the Apostle Paul explained that joy is the fruit of the Spirit's life within every believer, and it is amazing to me that available within me, because of Jesus' love for me, and because of the Spirit of Christ within me, there is, first of all, love, but the very next thing, joy. And after that, the peace that Jesus promised to each of us. Joy is so important. It shows up at least 60 times throughout the Christian Testament. The Magi, for example, were overwhelmed with joy when they saw the Christ star had stopped over an otherwise unassuming house in Bethlehem. And Jesus often spoke of those who would receive his word of truth with joy, 
of the person who was overjoyed to find a great treasure hidden in a field. The crowning reward for the good and faithful servant is to enter into the joy of their master. And even in heaven, Jesus said, the angels experience joy over every person who repents. There's a deep truth about joy that Jesus conveyed to his followers and to us. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made complete. So it seems love, joy, and peace are very closely connected. And the experience of these are made complete when shared together in community, the community of God three in one and the community of us together. I once read a book, not written from a Christian perspective per se, but it has continued to have a great impact on my life. It's called How We Choose to Be Happy, The Nine Choices of Extremely Happy People their secrets, and their stories. I mean, that's pretty intriguing, right? It's based on the research of Rick Foster and Greg Hicks. And here is their basic premise. Extremely happy people have nine things that they choose. And it begins with intention, the active desire and commitment to be happy, and the decision to consciously choose attitudes and behaviors that lead to happiness over unhappiness. You know, this so reminds me of the Beatitudes that Jesus taught, and we're currently studying those Beatitudes in the women's Bible study. Look at all the unusual ways Jesus taught us to intentionally commit to what brings true joy, and and that's the meaning of blessed. According to Merriam-Webster, blessed means enjoying the bliss of heaven. So, Enjoying the bliss of heaven are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Enjoying the bliss of heaven are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Enjoying the bliss of heaven are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And enjoying the bliss of heaven are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Enjoying the bliss of heaven are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And enjoying the bliss of heaven are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Enjoying the bliss of heaven are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And enjoying the bliss of heaven are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Enjoying the bliss of heaven are you when people revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on Jesus' account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Accountability, the choice to create the life you want to live, to assume personal responsibility for your actions, your thoughts, and your feelings, and the emphatic refusal to blame others or view yourself as a victim. Now, this is the very foundation of choosing and continuing to live by faith in Christ. 
It might feel hard at first to embrace this choice. What if I really am a victim? Why would I choose not to view myself that way? Because to view myself as a victim creates a subtle shift in the story I tell myself about me and about God and about the world all around me. Terrible and tragic things can and do happen. And how I process those things is going to inform how I cope. And when I say to myself, I'm a victim, that's passive. Then I'm saying, things just happen to me. I have no power and no say. And yes, there are situations when in that moment, that is true. But overall, in Christ, it is not true at all. Filled with the Spirit and in the hands of God, I'm loved. My life has meaning. I have purpose in the world and I have agency. I can make choices. And this terrible event is not going to define me as anything else. Because I matter. And what I do and say matters. So I take responsibility for that. And when unrighteousness happens, either by my actions or by someone else's actions, then I take that to God in confession. And God promises to cleanse me from all unrighteousness, healing and restoring and making holy. This is the secret power spoken of in John's first letter. If we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we are acknowledging of our sins, trustworthy and righteous is the one who forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The truth is, you and I are sometimes left holding the bag. That's what it means to be made a victim in a situation, and others' sin is left in us. And it's no use to say it isn't there. We deceive ourselves if we say it's not there. It is. It's in the form of trauma and pain. And if we're willing to start processing that with the Lord and with wise and empathetic counselors, trustworthy and righteous is the one who forgives us and cleanses us. Now, you might be balking at a victim needing forgiveness, but you see, even here, the only way out of the trauma is to trust again and allow healing love to come in. Identification, the ongoing process of looking deeply within yourself to assess what makes you uniquely happy, apart from what you've been told by others should make you happy. One of Augustine's prayers was, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know Thee. And centuries later, Thomas Akempis wrote, A humble self-knowledge is a surer way to God than a search after deep learning. And then centuries after that, John Calvin wrote, Nearly the whole of sacred doctrine consists in these two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. So the more you and I understand who God made us to be and how God has gifted us spiritually, and how we're dealing with the world and with God and with who we are, the better able we are to live into God's great design. Centrality, the non-negotiable insistence on making central to your life that which brings you happiness. 
And of course, in every believer's life, that centrality is the Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, God three in one. By the receiving of the Holy Spirit, we also literally receive joy. Enjoying the bliss of heaven. Recasting the two-step process that transforms stressful problems and trauma into something meaningful and important and a source of emotional energy. Viewing our life stories through the eyes of God, God's love, and God's purposes. Options. The decision to approach life by creating multiple scenarios, to be open to new possibilities, and to adopt a flexible approach to life's journey. You know what that sounds like to me? Always prayerfully watching for how God is at work and being willing to move with God. Appreciation, the choice to appreciate deeply your life and the people in it and to stay in the present by turning each experience into something precious. As the Apostle Paul said, in all things give thanks to God who is the giver of all good things and then to really enjoy them, to appreciate them. Giving, the choice to share yourself with friends and community and to give to the world at large without the expectation of a return. Did you know there's only one time in the entire Bible where God invited people to test God on a promise? Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and thus put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. Later, Jesus echoed this very same sentiment. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for the measure you give will be the measure you get back. Truthfulness, the choice to be honest with yourself and others, and not allow societal, workplace, or family demands to violate your internal contract. For our Lord is the way, the truth, and the life. And God seeks those who will worship in spirit and in truth. As I read through that list for the very first time, I realized the scriptural principles embedded within them, and I was once again struck with James' appraisal that every perfect gift is, after all, from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And also, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable and gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. Even now, as we enter into the darkest days of the COVID pandemic, The third candle of Advent reminds us of God's great gift of joy, a gift you and I have access to all the time through God's Holy Spirit. So may we take a respite from all the somberness, all the sadness, and allow ourselves to rejoice in anticipation of Jesus' coming. Let's pray. O Lord God, we do anticipate with great joy your coming, both the day you return and the night of your birth. We ask that 
even as we face hard things ahead, that you will remind us again and again, your joy is within us and that you take great joy in us. We pray these things to the praise of your glorious grace.